thanks for tuning in to the Writers of Color Reading Series, a podcast presented by the Englert Theater and hosted by me, Chuy Rentadilla. In the small, neat neighborhood where the woman lives, some neighbors cross the street when they see her and her lanky husband coming. The people next door close their shades when she pulls in her driveway, and once, when her husband comes home early from from work, the lady hisses from her porch, you work for the state, I'll report you. He grins at the neighbor and flips up his middle finger. When he comes inside, his blue eyes are narrowed and his smile false. The woman knows it's because she's Vietnamese. It isn't her husband with his flashing blue eyes and curly blonde hair who makes the neighbors lower their shades or cross the street. Behind closed doors, the woman mocks them with her husband. Provincial, she calls them, uneducated, ignorant pigs, she and her husband cackle. She and her husband met while studying in Madrid, but it's 1972 in suburban America, and the only thing the woman can possibly be to her neighbors is a war bride, an intruder, a gook, or chink. Assholes, her husband says when the neighbors put up a high fence inside their house, the woman curses. Son bet, idiots, she yells in French. Didu mai, go screw yourself, she shouts in Vietnamese. Pendejos, dumbasses, she screams in Spanish. Arconcha kai, son of a bitch, she spits in Cambodian. Fuckers, the woman says in English. This is her favorite English word. The woman loves the scrape of her front teeth against her bottom lip. The bursting release of that pho, followed by the bite of the second syllable. Fuckers, she chants as she looks out her window. Fuckers, she shouts at the crisp green lawns, the painted porch swings, the rippling flags that surround her. We are joined today by Yasmina Denmadden. Yasmina Denmadden is a Vietnamese American writer who lives in Iowa. Her fiction and nonfiction have been published or are forthcoming in the Idaho Review, Pink, Necessary Fiction, The Forge, The Atticus Review, The Fairy Tale Review, and other journals. Her short stories have been finalists for the Iowa Review Award in Fiction and the Master's Review Anthology. Her flash fiction stories have been finalists for the Fractured Microfiction Contest and the Wigleaf Top 50 Very Short Fictions Fiction Prize. She teaches literature and creative writing at Drake University and is at work on a collection of short stories. Yasmina, it is a pleasure to have you. How are you feeling? I am feeling good, and thank you for having me, Chewie. I'm excited. Can you talk really briefly about like where you're at, what you're doing, how you got to, to where you are over in at Drake University in Des Moines? Yeah, sure. So um, maybe like some of, of the other writers who you've you've talked with, I did get my MFA way back when. So I, I started there um, in terms of like the trajectory of where I am now at Drake and then was in a series of many, many visiting and adjunct positions all here at Drake, um, but for a long time, for you know, 10 plus years. I then was lucky enough to apply for a uh, writing position here that I landed after a long time. And um, I'm really happy to report that I just found out on Thursday that I got tenure, so. Ooh, all right, that's a yeah, huge deal, yeah. Yeah, so it took me a really long kind of like 
ass backward way of getting to it, but I eventually got to it. But I certainly, it was a long road. And in in terms of writing, um, a, a couple of the things that I shared with you is I've always um, been primarily interested in writing short fiction. And I always joke that I'm just doing my best to like keep finding subgenres to make less money as a writer. So now I'm really into flash fiction. So I'm like, if there's like the smallest market possible for a book, it would probably be like a flash fiction collection. And that's what I'm currently working on. So what what do you think is your like gravit gravitation, if I can use a made up word, <laughs> toward, towards like flash fiction in particular, like the idea. And, and for, for those people who don't know, maybe even like, how would you describe, how would you describe flash fiction? You know, I think if you ask anyone who writes flash fiction, every single writer of the genre will have a different definition uh, and will fight you on, on what it is. And I would say, you know, sort of the key uh, element of flash fiction that most people would agree on would be that it, it's fewer than a thousand words. Then you start getting into the details of like micro fiction, you know, being fewer than 500 or a drabble has to be a hundred words exactly. And, you know, those kinds of distinctions, but fewer than a thousand words, I think most flash writers would probably agree on, you know, the short definition that I often use, especially when I'm teaching, is that you are most interested in the the art of compression, right? How do you compress all of the elements of a, a strong narrative into fewer than a thousand words? How are you playing with time? I think we all want to be precise as writers. It doesn't matter what genre you're writing in, right? But with with flash fiction, the emphasis on precision becomes that much more important because you have to whittle it down to 999 words, a thousand words at, at most. Yeah. And for, I could imagine for like a lay person, if you're telling them that you're, you're doing something that's intentionally in the grand scheme of things, like a thousand words is like nothing, right? Like, in terms, like and like how much more difficult that can actually be right like to try to get to the essence of a story in a thousand words or if even go like you said even like shorter than that like, yeah like, oh, it's, it's definitely a challenge right yeah. it is and i don't know there's something fun to me about the challenge it might be why i've started to write so much flash in the last five or six years is because i love the challenge of the form i really enjoy it your response is exactly what I think any writer would have, which is like, oh, the shorter you go, the harder it starts to get. Like you can't waste a word. But I think most people, if they, you know, haven't heard of flash fiction, are like, oh, it's, you know, like a hundred words. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> done, you know. One, my mother chases me around the dining room table while my sister watches frozen in the corner of the room like a demented deer. The edge of the table catches my hip and I swear I feel a crack somewhere inside me. She is a blur in my peripheral vision, her long black hair lashing out behind her like a whip. I only stop when she does, but I'm ready to keep going. She lunges across the dining room table, but I jump back. I laugh as she pounds the table and spit flies from her mouth as she screams. You think you know everything? Nothing. You know nothing. 
My mother's face, which is beautiful, even I can't deny that, glistens with sweat and her full lips stretch back in a sneer. You're a lunatic, I say. I smile because I know this is part of what makes her crazy, that I won't raise my voice, that I won't cry in front of her, that I won't eat her Vietnamese food or follow her rules. This is America, I tell her, get a clue already. She goes into the kitchen and I wonder if it's over, if I've won, until she comes back gripping her butcher's knife, the one she uses to slice meat for the soup that makes me choke. My hip aches and I feel sweat collecting at the base of my spine. Even for her, this seems like too much. Outside, I hear children scream, ghost in the graveyard. Their laughter is far away, but it washes through the screened windows, muted as if we were all underwater. When I was a kid, my mother cried for me when I got hurt. No one has ever cried for me but her. Two, stupid girl and me running after her crazy like a chicken with its head off, skirt so short and top she cut to hang off her, make her look like she live on the street. No shame. Always Elise thinks she knows, her hair blonde from her father, and she puts lemon to make even lighter. No Asian in her. Not like her sisters and brother. They have Asian. They know how to act. Turn off the soup, I yell at Lily, who watches. Elise just keep running, always going that one. Never home, never helps, only with friends all the time. When she's home, only open her mouth to complain. I won't eat that, she always say. Only cereal she eats, and then she in the bathroom. I know what she's doing. I lean on the table and she laughs in my face. My wrist aches when I pound the table. You think you know everything? She's so stubborn. When she was a baby, she barely cry. Not like my others who cry easy, who let me hold them. No, Elise only cry if it really hurts. So I knew if it was bad if she cry. I always afraid when she little. I was so young with Elise and back then I cry with her. In the kitchen, the soup boils over. Broth everywhere under the burners, dripping on my clean floor. All day I cook and clean and still more to do. Help kids with math. Max need to do his reading. Still need to chop vegetables for dinner. The knife handle is so smooth and it feels so light in my hand. Three. Watching my mother chase my sister around the dining room table is like watching a sporting event. Not like tennis with its neat volleys and its predictable accumulation of points. More like horse racing a burst of energy by beautiful muscled beasts who might, in a flash, collapse in a heap of busted bone and ligament. My mother yells for me to turn off the soup, but I won't move. They are long and lean, my mother and sister, with straight dark hair that flares out behind them as they lap the table. Who knows what they fight about this time? My sister's smart mouth, her habit of puking after meals. Elise calls the Vietnamese food my mother cooks disgusting. Sometimes it is, but it's often good, too. That's the thing about Elise. Nothing can ever be more than one thing for her, for either of them. They're exactly the same, really, my mother and Elise. My mother can't catch Elise, so she yells in Vietnamese that she's going to kill her. This is the only Vietnamese I know. You're a lunatic, Elise tells her. She is calm and smiling in her peach miniskirt and off-the-shoulder sweatshirt. My sister talks to me like this, too, and it makes me want to punch her in the face. My mother goes to the kitchen and returns gripping a knife, the one she uses to chop bitter melon for the soup I love. Elise is afraid, though she tries to look like she isn't. My older sister is hard, but it's true that my mother seems crazy. They stare at each other for a moment, both breathing fast. There's a chance my mother won't throw the knife, but there's just as good a chance she will. We wait. When my mother flings the knife across the table at my sister, 
The tip of the blade nicks the wooden surface before clattering to the floor beside Elise, who has flattened herself against the wall. No one moves until finally, I walk closer to the table and see the split in the shiny brown surface glimpse the raw splintered wood inside. interview form you talked about how you had basically like a collection of stories that you scrapped and I, heard, I read this and I was like oh shit I hate how much I can, I can relate yeah, to this because I think I, I did I think for a lot of writers of color in America who had the education that we did and who had the literary kind of influence that we had and I'll just get into it you said I scrapped the collection of longer form stories that long no longer speak to what I'm interested in in exploring as a writer. I spent a lot of time in grad school trying to write like writers. I'd grown up learning where the epitome of literary friction, let's just say I had a lot of stories that feature old white men or stories that played well with old white men. <laughs> yeah. uh, those stories are hard for me to read now, but it was still tough to trash them. Yeah. I mean, I we're both sort of cringing as we're discussing this because I think back on some of the stories I wrote and I was just like, oh, Jesus, what was I thinking? You know, I, I, probably like you, grew up a big reader from a very young age. And, you know, I don't know what kind of nerd I was, but really getting interested in what was considered like good art and literary fiction at a pretty young age. So, you know, I was reading like Carver, probably like when I was like 12 and 13 and already starting to be like, this is what real writing is. Uh, and I still, I mean, Carver's a amazing. But, um, you know, I spent a long time just mimicking those kinds of stories that, you know, I really liked Carver. I loved Hemingway. I liked John Cheever. Like it was so white and it was so male and it was, you know, so old. Yeah. We've been so much influenced by these, like, you know, the ghosts of these mm -hmm. old white dudes and mm -hmm. what do they center and what do we center? And now, and like, even the readings that you're do you've done for this episode, it it's like, I, I'm thinking about that. I'm like, wh who's centered here? And it's it's definitely like, I think you can see, I mean, just from talking to you, your progression of that. And, and, and I appreciate that so much. Do you have any upcoming projects that people should look out for? Is there a way for people to connect with you directly? Uh, any, you know, plugs you want to give? You know, I, I wish I had a really big plug to give right now. What I am doing is I'm going on a year-long sabbatical. Um, I know, like totally lucked out. I got tenure and I applied for sabbatical the same year. So what I'm hoping is that I will be plugging a book uh, after, after this year. I'm probably about 60% through a collection that I feel proud of and doesn't make me cringe like um, <laughs> those old stories we were talking about. Um, so I hope to be sending my book out in about a year. That's the goal. And, you know, if you want to find my work, you can go to the uh, Drake faculty page and um, I have a list of all my publications there. Yasmina, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, oh, yeah. thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I really enjoyed speaking with you, Chewie.
She was always hungry. So when Adeline ate her beautiful baby boy, no one was surprised. Not her husband or the friends who commented relentlessly on her appetite. Look how she eats. Where does it go? They exclaimed with delight and horror. Her legs, they must be hollow. You're insatiable, her husband often claimed, sprawled naked across wrinkled sheets. You just can't get enough, can you? He smiled proudly with such statements, and it was true. She couldn't get enough of anything. She was hungry. It couldn't be helped. When the baby came, Adeline knew she was in trouble. The tiny boy was utterly delectable. His fat, juicy cheeks, the velvety soles of his feet, the whispery tickle of his eyelashes against her breasts when he nursed. She kissed his small belly, his dimpled knees and elbows, his fuzzy scalp, his peachy bum, his tiny curled toes. She would have kissed his eyeballs if it were easier. The husband enjoyed these displays of motherly love, especially since they did nothing to, dab to dampen her appetite for him. If anything, his wife's appetites had grown since giving birth. In the middle of the night, just hours after they'd fucked, she'd climb on top of him demanding more and yet more upon waking. He joked he'd have to outsource to meet her demands. When Adeline laughed and said she'd supplement as needed, the husband became just the slightest bit anxious. When he came home to find her astride their neighbor, Sid, he was more relieved than angry, though. It's true what they say, he thought, as he watched her bucking against his friend. It takes a village. Between kissing her baby and fucking her husband and the occasional neighbor, Adeline ate and Adeline read, heaping spoonfuls of peanut butter straight from the jar as she devoured a fat tome on geography and the rise of first world countries, towering sandwiches that toppled over when she set them down to turn the pages of Anna Karenina, steak that she ate straight from the pan without cutting, just a rare hunk speared by her fork, the easier to eat while reading timeless tales of gods and heroes. So it really came as no surprise to anyone that Adeline woke up one morning and ate her baby. She'd begun as she always began every morning, swinging her little munchkin up from his crib to the changing table and cooing to him as she changed his diaper. Then Adeline kissed him from the soles of his feet to his wispy crown of hair, not realizing until he was gone that she'd actually gobbled him whole. You weren't supposed to do that, cried her husband, though he'd known it was bound to happen. But of course I know that, she shouted. I was just so hungry it couldn't be helped. And with that, she turned on her heel, grabbed a jar of peanut butter from the pantry, and settled onto the couch with a tattered copy of Bad Behavior. How could you? He continued to cry. The woman paused and shook her peanut butter-covered finger at him. Let it go, or I'll eat you too. When the husband brought up the baby next, Adeline swallowed her husband in one gulp. Silence at last, she thought, and drove to the library to check out more books. When the neighbors realized what had happened, that she had eaten not just her baby, but her husband as well, they whispered, how could she? And what kind of woman does that to her family? I know she has a big appetite, they exclaimed, but how much does she need? Since Sid, Betsy, Michael, Anastasia, Eduardo, and several others were benefiting from Adeline's sexual appetite, these whispers never grew to the roar they might have. Plus, they knew what happened to Jackson and Sally, Adeline's nosy neighbors who liked to peek at her over the backyard fence and who hadn't refrained from openly judging her. Adeline ate them, one right after the other with barely a pause after swallowing Jackson, who many considered to be morbidly obese. In addition to devouring food, books, and the occasional neighbor or two, Adeline had taken to riding her bike for hours at a time. She liked to load up a backpack with cheese, baguette, jars of cornichons and olives, and cycle out far enough to where the roads turned to gravel and she could count, count fence posts and hear the birds. 
When she got tired, she'd stop on the side of the road and eat everything in her pack. Sometimes she'd read a book. More often than not, she'd move off the road into the field next to it and fall asleep. And this is how Adeline came to wake up one day to a man hovering above her with a wolfish smile that opened to say, you know, you could run into trouble out here alone, lady. And Adeline replied, his jeans were horribly tight and with his legs spread above her, she marveled that the denim didn't split at the seam. And he repeated, she noticed an unsightly vein pulsing in his forehead. Well, who knows what could happen? Someone could hurt you. Hurt me how? Adeline sat up and gently pushed on the man's leg so he'd back up and give her some room. When he grabbed her wrist tightly, she opened her mouth so wide that her jaw popped loudly, momentarily surprising the man before she polished him off. She lay back on the grass, caressing her full belly. Her neighbors thought her a gluttonous monster, an insatiable demon lover. She laughed to herself. At them, who were they to judge her? Who's to say her appetites weren't bountiful? rather than gluttonous. again to Yasmina Madden and just a little shout out before we get into this week's prompt based on our conversation with Yasmina. Um, we had a super heartfelt and, and open uh, community response to one of our, our, our past prompts uh, from Emily um, and I'm going to do just a, just a snippet, just the first um, couple lines from, from this prompt. Uh, if you go on the Engler Theater social media and, and kind of scroll through, you can find it. Um, but Emily says, and this was a response to taking a moment to really reflect on this past year, right? 2020 and 2021. She says, Emily says, I miss my tiny office with the awful overhead light. I miss spontaneous conversations. I miss being seen on good hair days. But I'm not missing anybody. My loved ones are COVID-free and employed. For that, I am privileged. Confronting my privilege has been uncomfortable, but certainly not as uncomfortable as the centuries of erasure that BIPOC and LGBTQ plus people have endured. For that, I am guilty. And Emily goes on to explain a little bit more about her, her feelings and her experiences. And I just wanted to quick give a shout out thank you so much for the response and i really did feel like where you were coming from so our thanks again to emily uh for that response and for this week's community prompt uh there's something that yasmina described so the way that yasmina describes flash fiction to when she's teaching is you're being the most interested in compression and the precision it takes in whittling down big things down to their essence so for this week's response I want to see if we can explore that, right? So let's hear your, and another thing that Yasmina described was a drabble, which is exactly 100 words. So let's hear your drabble length. It can be 100 words exact if you want to be really strict about it or less, um, exploring a big concept. And I'm just going to pull something out of that. Um, here's a big concept that I want to hear from, from y'all about. How has your tactile relationship changed with others in the last year? And what I mean by that is 
the physical touch, right? Socially distancing, being away from people, not being able to touch people the way we had before. Um, is there a story centered on the minimizing of physical touch or the possible reintroduction of contact that was absent for a year? Now, for this response, for it to be a story, like there actually is a beginning, middle, and end, right? It's not just uh, an answer, right? I want to see if we can actually craft a drabble-length story um, inspired by Yasmina's work and her amazing uh, stories that she told today. Uh, so we hope to hear from you, and we'll see you next time. This is Chewy signing off. Support for this podcast comes from Friends of the Inglert. To learn more, visit inglert.org slash friends. Ongoing support provided by the National Endowment for the Arts and the Iowa Arts Council a division of the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs and by the United States Regional Arts Resilience Fund. Phase One is an initiative of Arts Midwest and its peers United States Regional Arts and Organizations, made possible by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation.